listening to the place for biblical end times truth, The Remnant Report. I am your host, The Remnant Warrior. Here, we are dedicated to equipping the remnant for the tribulation that must shortly come to pass, as well as reaching the lost at any cost. The time is near us to not love our lives even unto brothers and sisters the remnant warrior here from serpents and doves radio to tell you guys a little bit about anchor the anchor podcast network is an excellent platform for anybody to have a podcast on i would seriously recommend anchor to absolutely anyone whether you're just starting a podcast want to start a podcast or you already have a podcast and you're looking for a better option to host your podcast on anchor is definitely for you all you have to do is just go to anchor.fm slash start again that's anchor.fm slash start and start or switch your podcast to anchor for free And join me, the Remnant Warrior, on Anchor today. Happy podcasting, guys, and God bless each and every one of you. Hello, dear brothers and sisters, and welcome to another edition of The Remnant Report. I am your host, The Remnant Warrior, and I am, as always, extremely blessed and happy to be able to be back with you all again for uh, another week. Um, Always thankful when the Lord blesses me with more time here on this earth and I want to ask you guys before we um before we get into the topic that we are going to be discussing tonight I want to ask you guys really quick to uh say a prayer for me uh I um I've been struggling recently with some issues with my uh, heart rhythm and it is uh, giving me a little bit of problems tonight and so I just want to (laughs) ask right now that you guys um, please just say 
uh, a little prayer for me as we are um, having tonight's program. Um, hopefully, the Lord will allow it to pass and um, we'll be able to finish the, the program with no problems. Tonight, we are going to be talking about a very important subject. Um, one that I thought was important enough to where I decided to uh, live stream to YouTube again, which is, I mean, not YouTube, sorry, to multi-stream from, to not just YouTube, but to Facebook as well again, just for tonight, because in, I don't know, past several years, I have heard so many ridiculous things about this particular topic that I had to finally come out and cover it myself. And um, the topic that we are going to be talking about tonight is, you know, probably the most important uh, thing to the Christian faith and that is the word of God the Bible because without the word of God we would not um, you know we would not know anything about Jesus Christ and guys I apologize I know you can hear my dogs um, I meant to uh, to put them out before I started and I forgot but I'm going to fix that right now so give me two seconds and I'll be right back while I'm putting the dogs outside so they aren't in the background take this time if you haven't already to hit the like button if you aren't already subscribed hit the subscribe button and also share tonight's program this is the perfect opportunity to say that silent prayer for me and hit the like button and the share button. All right, guys, I will be right back. Right, and we are back. See, that didn't take but just a second. Now, in the interest of time and not wanting to, uh, you know, waste valuable time presenting the uh, very, very Matter of fact, allow me to say this. 
what I'm going to be presenting tonight is truly a few that I have only heard one other place. So, so I don't waste any other valuable time presenting probably a view that most of you have never heard regarding the Word of God, I am going to go ahead and jump into tonight's program instead of taking the time to share. So if you all would not mind helping me out there and uh, sharing the program on uh, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, wherever, Messenger, wherever, I would greatly appreciate it. I am going to wait until after the program to share it, even though I've had a couple of people ask me to send them direct links. um, I did share the program just in the uh, Kingdom Productions chat, so hopefully everybody who is a part of the Kingdom Productions chat is watching, and you guys can help me out by sharing the program further for me. Now, What we are going to be discussing regarding the Bible is where tonight's program truly um, is probably going to be controversial, and I'm sure you guys have all heard something like this, but um, I have heard people say some very controversial statements about the Bible. such as the Bible we have today was corrupted um, sometime in between the first century and now I've heard things like, you know, that we don't, what we have today is not the Word of God, that only the original is the Word of God. I've heard things like there were books that were taken out of the Bible. That is the most, uh, I would say the biggest thing that is false that um, I'm sure you've probably all heard somebody else on another YouTube program or another uh, podcast or something cover the subject of whether or not uh, the Bible had books taken out of it by the Catholic Church or the Pope, or Constantine, or one of those uh, theories such as that. We are not going to be discussing that in any way, shape, or form. So, if you have already heard that, then you don't have to worry about uh, hearing it over again, because that is not the information that we are going to present tonight. Um, you know, Tonight, uh, we're going to be looking at the Bible that the early church used, that the apostles used. Um, as you guys know, I um, if you have listened to me for any length of time, you guys know that I think it is imperative and super important that we as the remnant of the Israel of God get back not to the Hebraic roots of our faith as many in the 
YouTube, Facebook, Christian, Truther world would say today, but instead of the Hebrew roots of our faith that we should get back to, I think that it is imperative that we get back to the historic faith of the apostles and the anti-Nicene church that was uh, the faith that was agreed upon by uh, all who were in the church except for you know the heretical sect such as the Gnostics for the first 300 years of Christianity. So because of that, uh, in preparing for tonight's program, just like pretty much every other one I do, uh, you know, I made sure that I put as much as possible in tonight's program from the early church. And it wasn't hard to do because, uh, you know, if you are like me at some point in the Bible, I mean, at some point in the past, you've been reading the Bible. You've been reading uh, from the New Testament and you have seen where a New Testament writer will you know, quote from an Old Testament passage and then you go and you try to find that Old Testament passage, you look it up, but it reads differently from the way you just read it in the New Testament. And I want to, uh, I want to ask now because I can see myself freezing up some on the screen. So do any of you see, uh, like, is it lagging or is it my camera messing up? Because I have been having some problems with the camera. So if the camera goes out, don't go anywhere, just continue listening. I'll make sure that, uh, let me check it. And if the camera goes out, just be sure to keep, be sure to put, you know, the logo up. Okay, Tia says that it's stuttering, so let me ask you, is it the, is it my words that's stuttering or is it just the camera? Because I can, I don't have to be on camera. Like right now I've got the camera off and I've just got the logo pulled up. So can you hear me? Am, am I lagging? Is like the, the, uh broadcast lagging or the stream lagging or is it just that one thing the the camera messing up all right well good since it was just the camera and not the picture then i am just going to turn the camera off from for now and i'll turn it back on later if you know if time permits or whatever i just want to get the point of tonight's subject across and then if I have time to fiddle with the camera I will but a good example of reading a New Testament uh, or an Old Testament quote in the New Testament and then going and looking it up and it not reading the same in your say uh, KJV is like uh, the scripture in Matthew chapter 21 verse 15 and 16 
you know, Jesus here, he quotes scripture to the chief priests and the scribes at the temple in Jerusalem. And we read, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have perfect praise. Now that is, again, like I said, Matthew 21, 15 through 16. And that's the New King James Version. But... Your Bible probably has a footnote showing that Jesus is quoting from Psalms 8, verse 2. So if you look up that passage in your Old Testament and read it, it actually reads, Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings you have ordained strength. Well, wait a minute. That's not what Jesus quoted to the, to the chief priests and the scribes. Uh, the, the whole point of the quotation is that the, the babes and nursing infants out of their mouths would be perfect praise. The way that that verse reads in our Old Testament completely misses the point of what Jesus was saying. So, why did Jesus quote the passage the way he did? Why did he quote it differently from the way that it reads in our Old Testaments? And it really does not matter what Old Testament you are reading from. The chances are, when I say Old Testament, it doesn't matter what English translation, be it um, the King James Version, the New King James, or, you know, one of the many, many, many other English translations chances are it is not going to say what Jesus said in the New Testament, what he quoted to the chief priests and the scribes. And why didn't the chief priests and the scribes challenge him on this? You would think that they would have said the scriptures say no such thing or something like you're misquoting the Psalms because we know that the chief priests and the scribes and, you know, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they had no love for Jesus at all. Well, the reason that the chief priests and the scribes did not challenge what Jesus said there, what he was quoting, is because he was not misquoting scripture at all. He was just quoting from a different Old Testament text than the ones we have in our Bibles. Jesus was actually quoting from the Septuagint. Now, in Psalms 8, verse 2, in the Septuagint, it reads this, Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings you have perfected praise. That's just as Jesus quoted it, word for word. So, what we are going to be looking at tonight is 
going to answer the question and even more than answer the question of why is why does our Bibles say something different we are going to be looking at the version of scripture that Jesus and the Jews at the time of Jesus used as well as and this is the important part the Bible that the apostles and the first 300 years and even after that quite a bit after that of Christianity why the the translation that they read what the difference is between theirs and ours and we're also gonna um, if we have enough time we're gonna be looking at you know maybe the reason for the changes and if there is a difference are our Bibles actually the Word of God well first before I go any further I want to say something about that last question it are our Bibles actually the Word of God well I want to say this about that I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and the way that I believe that is the same way that the early church believed it that the Apostles believed it and that is that Scripture in its um, you know when when God gave the words to the prophets and uh, the authors of scripture the writer well the author of scriptures the, is the Holy Spirit but the point is that when the Holy Spirit gave the words to the men who wrote them down when they wrote them down the word was inerrant there was no fallibility at all in scripture now the question then becomes is every copy every time somebody copies the word of God does God also, um, you know, make that inerrant? Does God make sure that they make no mistakes and make that word perfect when a translation of Scripture is copied? Be it in the same language that it was already in or be it in a new language. And if not, then are any copies of Scripture um, are they infallible and okay? And I think the answer that we're going to find out is that yes, there are uh, copies of Scripture that are the inerrant Word of God. However, they certainly are not all inerrant. 
we can easily go to many, many Bible translations and find mistakes. In our Bible study last night, I pointed out a mistake that William Tyndale made in translating uh, the, uh, the Greek New Testament into English, and that was um, he translated three different uh, um, Greek words into the one English word, hell. He translated the word Hades, the word Gehenna, and the word Tartarus, all as hell in the William Tyndale, um, in, in Tyndale's translation of the Bible. And when the King James translators translated the scripture for the New Testament, um, the translators of the KJV used 90% of Tyndale's translation. So that's why in the KJV you have, um, you know, in the New Testament alone, you have the word hell in many places where it should actually say Hades or it should actually say the lake of fire. Um, But that, of course, does not mean that you cannot get the message of Scripture from that translation. That just means it's not inerrant and without any mistakes because it was copied by man. And we know that men copy the Bible for various reasons and they're not always godly ones as we will see tonight. Um, I'll give you a perfect example of that before we go any further. Look at the uh, new LGBTQ whatever other letters they've adopted now. Look at look at their translations of the scriptures. I mean, people have uh, look at also look at the the Hebrew root translations of the scriptures. I mean, people can seriously mess up the word of God on purpose, um, you know, to fit their own doctrinal beliefs. Now, we're going to see if the reason why our Bibles are not the same as the Bibles the apostles used. And of course, when I say Bibles, I'm talking about the Old Testament here because the New Testament, of course, hadn't been written yet. It was, uh, you know, mainly uh, the Apostle Paul who wrote the majority of the New Testament, um, and then the Gospel writers and a few other um, writers in the epistles. But it was still mainly the apostles who wrote the New Testament. So when I say the Bible tonight, I'm referring to the Old Testament and we're going to see, is the Old Testament that the apostles used and the Old Testament that is in our English versions is the reason for the change the same as the reasons for the change in like the uh, LGBT translations and the Hebrew root translations? Is it, Was it to uh, take out 
parts of scripture that perhaps some didn't like? Was it, in fact, to hide certain things? Well, allow me to say that the translation of the Word of God that the Jewish people as well as um, Jesus, who was, of course, a Jew, and the apostles, who were all Jews, as well as the first Christians, all the way through the anti-Nicene church, and even a little further, the reason that, or the, the, excuse me, not the reason, the translation of the Old Testament that they used was all the same, and it was the Septuagint. Now, some of you may have heard of the Septuagint. Some of you may have not. But the Septuagint, for those of you who have not heard of it, is simply uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And the Greek translation was translated... um, Back um, in, oh, well, there's actually, before before I go there, I want to say this. Uh, we're going to be looking at what is the Septuagint? Where did it come from? Why did Jesus quote from it rather than the Old Testaments that we have? And if our Old Testament translations are not taken from the Septuagint, then what exactly are they taken from? And what about the apostles, which we've already said, the apostles also use the Old Testament. So what, what Old Testament was used in the early Christian church? We also already answered that. It was the Septuagint as well. Finally, how did we come to have a different Old Testament from the one that Jesus quoted from? Well, I actually stumbled upon the Septuagint myself um, very much by accident Uh, and it wasn't in researching the early church like I have come across most of the things that I have taught here lately in the past you know year or two regarding the early church Um, no I actually stumbled upon the Septuagint uh, just from researching the name of God, the the original name of God that was, you know, removed in our Bibles and replaced with the word Lord and, you know, the the Tetragrammaton, the, the Yahweh, the Jehovah. Um, in researching that is how I stumbled upon the Septuagint. And, you know, I was learning very, very important things that I would certainly love to talk about on another episode that completely blows the sacred name movement out of the water. But for tonight, we're just going to stick with learning what 
the early Christians believed about the Old Testament as far as what the correct translation was. Now, the it was about the middle of the second century when you find the Jews using a different translation of scripture from the ones that the Christians were using. And like I said before, when the when the church was first formed in the during the time of Acts, um, and Jesus and even before that, during Jesus' time, both the Jews and the Christians they both use the same translation of scripture. Now, it was because of the messianic prophecies that the Christians were able to just pound the Jewish scholars with, the the Jewish religious leaders, they were able to prove Jesus being the Messiah from the Septuagint, which was the Jewish scriptures. They were, these, like I said, the the Septuagint were the Jewish scriptures first. This was not a Christian translation of the Bible. And the Christians were using the Jewish translation to prove Jesus was the Messiah because it had all of the prophecies so clearly the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament were just so clear in the Septuagint and that really is what prompted the Jews to do away with the version of scripture that they had, the Old Testament that they had, and come up with a different um, translation, if you will, or at least in the beginning, use a different translation. Uh, Now, some of you uh, may or may not have heard of that translation that they were using, but... um, Before I get into it, I want to say, um, you know, God foreknew and he foreordained the coming of Christ. He knew that the gospel would be taken to all nations, beginning with the countries surrounding the Mediterranean. It appears that in preparation for this very thing, that God used the conquest of Alexander the Great to provide the perfect setting where there would be one common language. And that common language was Greek, that most people throughout the Mediterranean world and beyond could all speak. Now, God also prospered the Roman Empire, and creating a situation where throughout the Mediterranean world there was peace, stability, good roads, uh, you know, safe travel on both land and on the sea. And 
to further prepare for the spread of the gospel, God even providentially scattered the Jews throughout the Mediterranean world uh, such that almost all major cities had a synagogue with access to the writings, the sacred writings in the Old Testament. Yet in all of this, when I was first seeing these things in researching the Septuagint, could I possibly believe that God did not furnish the Mediterranean world with a Bible that could be understand, I mean, could be understood by most people? Was I to believe that he kept his word locked up in Hebrew, a language that virtually no one outside of Judaism during that time could read? No, not at all. That was something that me as a believer in Jesus Christ and a follower and son of God, I just could not believe that. To me, this was God preparing a Bible for the Gentiles, or better yet, for the Israel of God, for the Gentile nations around the known world at that time to be able to come to Christ and be grafted onto the olive tree, the cultivative olive tree that is the Israel of God. Now, uh, God also worked through a Gentile ruler to provide a Bible for the entire Gentile world other than just what was surrounding the earth at that time. That is the same way that we have the Bible. Here in the West, we speak English. And so I know that although our Bibles don't necessarily say the same as the Septuagint and the Bibles that the um, apostles and the early Christians used, you can get the same message from the Old Testament. And it is, as we know, the New Testament that the Christians, we, the Israel of God, most rely on. So, to me, the fact that the um, Septuagint is not used in the King James and other English translations is not that big of a deal because uh, as important as the Old Testament is and as much a part of the Word of God as it is, you do not have to read Greek or even have a Bible that uh, uses the Septuagint in order to uh, get the message of the gospel, and that is the important part of the Word of God. Now, you know, as we all know, God has often used Gentile rulers all throughout the Old Testament to accomplish His will before 
uh, you know, like Cyrus and Darius, the kings who were in, they, they were the rulers of the, the various um, kingdoms that became empires, like King Cyrus was the one who uh, eventually uh, let the Jewish captives from Babylon go back to um, their land, and he also used evil, wicked um, Gentile rulers to to do his will as well, such as Nebuchadnezzar, who was the leader of the Babylonian Empire, who took the Jewish people captive in the first place. So, it's, it's not surprising to find that God would also work through a human ruler to provide a Bible um, for the Gentile world and the multitude of the Greek-speaking Jews um, at that time. And during um, the 3rd century B.C., God moved the Greek ruler of Egypt, who was named uh, Ptolemy II, to commission the Jewish sacred writings to be translated into Greek. Now, Ptolemy was a descendant of one of Alexander the Great's generals. The reason that he wanted to do this was that he was assembling the largest library ever to be assembled in in, and it was going to be the largest library in existence at that period in time. It was literally a world library. Um, and he wanted to include in his library the wisdom of all of the various peoples with whom the Greeks were in contact. And the Greeks in Egypt had been in contact with the Jewish people in Palestine for quite a, you know, quite a long time. And in addition to this, there was a large colony of Jews already living in Alexandria at that time. And Alexandria was, um, it was in Egypt. And he asked the Jewish high priest in Jerusalem to send him men who could translate Hebrew into Greek and to send with them the scrolls of the Jewish writings of the Old Testament. And the high priest sent him 72 different translators. Now, these events are all described in a letter written by a man named uh, Aristius. And according to his account, Ptolemy had the translators work on the island of Pharaoh situated in the harbor of Alexandria so that they would have a quiet place to work. Now, he says that Ptolemy divided them into groups to translate independently of each other so that there would be no collusion to hide the Jewish mysteries and laws from the Gentile world. So, according to Aristius, when they all finished translating, their translations were compared 
and they all read exactly the same. And it is for that reason their translation was viewed by the Jews and later by the Christians as being divinely inspired. So to answer the question I asked earlier, were there any copies or translations that were divinely inspired and inherent and without error? The answer is yes. The answer is yes, there was. And if there was not, then the Jewish people would not have accepted a translation that was in a language other than their language. Not only that, and way more important, Jesus Christ himself accepted it and quoted from it and used it. So did the apostles. So did the early Christians. God would not have allowed his church to be started using a faulty translation, anything less than perfect. Now, nowadays, we know that there are translations that are not perfect, but the word of God and the gospel message has been around for people for 2,000 years. And it was around in its original form as far as the Old Testament in the Christian church for hundreds of years. Now, back to the translation of the, the Septuagint, you know, I can well understand why an unbeliever, someone who does not believe in God or Jesus Christ, would doubt this narrative of the Septuagint translation as true, since it points to the, uh, you know, the providence of God, the providential hand of God in the formation of the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But however, there is nothing in the narrative that should be a problem for you and I Christians. For us believers in Jesus Christ, we should not have a problem with the providence of God in the creation of the Septuagint. Now, I know and I want to say right off the bat, that I understand that the majority of scholarship in modern times does not even view the Septuagint as inspired. And if I am wrong about the majority of, of biblical scholars not viewing it as inspired, I know that I have personally heard many well-known scholars say that the Greek Septuagint was not the, uh, um, on the same level as the original Hebrew, but when they say the original Hebrew, they're talking about the Hebrew Masoretic, which is what we are going to be looking at here very soon, because the Hebrew Masoretic was also a copy. The Hebrew Masoretic was also a copy. It is not the original Hebrew Scriptures. Now, the narrative about the 
the translation of the Septuagint has just as much historical documentation as most other ancient non-biblical events have. There is just as much, if not more in some cases, uh, documentation in the secular world for the creation of the Greek Septuagint as there is for just about everything else that is accounted for in ancient history. The account in the letter of Aristius was believed by Philo. It was believed by Josephus as well as the early Christians. Aristius states that Ptolemy had the translators work on the island of Pharos so that they would have a quiet place to work. Philo, he himself was a highly respected Jew who lived in Alexandria at the time of Christ. And his account of the translation of the Septuagint is extremely close to the narrative provided by the letter of Aristius. However, he he furnishes some important historical information from his own time. And this is what he says. He says, on which account, even to this very day, there is every year a solemn assembly held and a festival celebrated on the island of Pharaohs. To which not only the Jews, but a great number of persons of other nations sail across. He says, Sorry, I lost my place. Give me just a second. Reverencing the place in which the first light of interpretation shone forth and thanking God for that ancient feast of beneficence, which was always young and fresh. And after the prayers and the giving of thanks, some of them pitched their tents on the shore, and some of them lay down without any tents in the open air on the sand of the shore. So, if both Jews and Gentiles were visiting the island of Pharos and celebrating the anniversary of the translation of the Septuagint every year, the account of Aristius hardly sounds like a legend. I mean, in fact, Justin Martyr, when discoursing with the Greeks around the year uh, 150 AD, he said this, he said, you men of Greece, this is no fable, nor have I narrated something fictitious. Rather, I myself have been in Alexandria and have seen the remains of the little cottages and at the pharaohs which are still preserved 
And I have heard these things from the inhabitants of Alexandria, who had received them as part of their country's tradition. I have told you things that you can also learn from others, and especially from those wise and esteemed men who have written of these things, Philo and Josephus. So, you see, Justin Martyr offers proof that the account is not only not a legend or a fable, but he says that he had actually been in Alexandria and he had seen the remains of the cottages on the island of Pharos, where the translators actually worked. Now, I want to look at why the Septuagint was actually remarkable. The translation that these Jewish scholars produced, it came to be known as the translation of the 70. And guys, if if you hear any um, noise in the background, I apologize. I know that most of you know that I put my dogs out earlier, but my son just came in from football practice and he did not realize that um, I was live in my office and uh, I apologize for that right off the bat but back to why the Septuagint was so remarkable it was called the work of the the word excuse me the translation of the 70 70 being a type of shorthand for the 72. Now, we don't understand things like shorthand today where the English language is concerned as far as, you know, saying one number and it actually meaning Uh, another number but back then that was common and the word 70 in Latin is actually Septuaginta so that is why the translation is known today as the Septuagint now when the translation was finished it was placed in the library of Alexandria where it stood for centuries and the translation of the Septuagint was a monumentous event in several different ways. Uh, First, it was the first translation ever made of any of the sacred scriptures. It was the first translation ever made. It was the first substantive work to be written in Koenig Greek. The same Greek that the New Testament was later written in. All of the pagan or secular Greek writings up until that time, they were written in classical Greek. Now, copies of the Septuagint were soon made and it quickly became the Bible of the Greek-speaking Jewish world. The Jews viewed it not just as a good translation, but as an inspired translation and the Word of God. Now, the scriptures finally available and accessible to the Gentile world made it prime and ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. 
And in the centuries that followed the translation of the Septuagint, many Gentiles began attending the Jewish synagogues where they could hear the scriptures read and discussed in their own language. And finally, it laid the groundwork for the gospel to to potentially and eventually reach the entire world. Not just the entire uh, Mediterranean and Middle Eastern world. No, the entire world. Now, before we go any further um, with the history of the Septuagint, I want to I want to look at just a couple of questions, and that one of starting with number one being how were um, how were the scriptures transmitted? From the time of Moses and David and the prophets up until the 3rd century BC when the Septuagint was translated. Uh, next, who copied them from one generation to another? Third, we know copies of the scriptures and perhaps some of the original manuscripts were kept at the temple in Jerusalem, but what happened to the scriptures when the Babylonians destroyed both the temple and then Jerusalem itself? Who took the scriptures to Babylon and preserved them? Who brought the scriptures back to Jerusalem when the remnant of the Israelites returned to Jerusalem? The answer to all of these questions is we don't know. We know virtually nothing about the transmission of the Old Testament text uh, between the days of Moses up until the time of the translation of the Septuagint. You know, all we know is that the scriptures were transmitted from generation to generation and were still in existence in the 3rd century B.C. Now, we also know that when men copied the scriptures by hand, they did not always copy them perfectly. With regard to both Old and New Testament, there are some variations between all of the hand-copied manuscripts. As variations would develop, eventually, there ended up being three different text families of the Old Testament. The one that the uh, Septuagint was translated from, which is the one that uh, you might as well be cons- you might as well consider the same as the Septuagint because we know that it was inspired of God and Jesus himself held it to be scripture. The other was the proto-masoretic text family, which was the family, that the unbelieving Jews eventually embraced after the time of the apostles. And then there was something called the Samaritan Pentateuch. Uh, Or there was a family of scripture that the Samaritan Pentateuch was actually translated from. Now, in his providence, God saw to it that the differences in these three text families were very minor. All of them have the same people, the same events, and the same doctrines. 
most Old Testament verses read exactly the same regardless of which text family or which manuscript that you're reading it from. Now, hearing this may be a little startling to you and you may be asking why God did not preserve the original uh, copies of the scripture and it, it could even be faith shattering to some of you but please I please I beg you do not let it be I realize that it's not what most of us would expect to discover and it certainly is not what we would want to discover but when I myself when I first came across this I have to admit that I wrestled with it some um, because it's, I guess, just human nature. But however, God's wisdom is far greater than ours as human beings. And I have no doubt at all whatsoever that he could have preserved his word without any changes whatsoever however then his word would turn on the precise lettering of that original text and people would start worshiping the text instead of the message they would also focus more on the text of the word and on the God of the word. Not only that, as soon as a copyist made an error, it would no longer be God's word. And more importantly, as soon as someone translated it into another language, then it would definitely no longer be God's word. That is because you can never precisely convey every meaning and verb tense from one language to another. Our language actually affects how we think about things. I first became aware of this uh, about a year ago, maybe not even quite a year ago, when I was uh, doing the, the research that I mentioned in the beginning on the name of God and the sacred name movement of the Hebrew roots crowd and that some translator uh, in, in the article I was reading there was some translator who had convinced their boss um, that they knew English and that it was the entire article was about instructions that were written for a product that was made in China back when China was first getting into the world marketplace and this this translator convinced their boss that they knew English and you know they probably did know thousands of English words but 
it was obvious that the thought patterns of this Chinese translator were extremely different than how we think as English-speaking people about things. And virtually, uh, you know, every language that, that there is, many, if not most, words have more than one meaning. And, you know, sometimes the meaning can be very different. Most of the time, the correct meaning is clear from the context. But, however, you know, many times there is an ambiguity, ambigu- you know the word I'm trying to say, ambiguity that isn't so clear, yet it can be hard to convey that ambiguity. There we go, I got it. It can be hard to convey that ambiguity whenever you translate that word from one language into another. A good example of this is the the Hebrew word ruach. Um, You know, it means both spirit and wind or breath. However, there is no common English word that means both spirit and wind. So when a translator takes Ruach and translates it into English, he has to make a decision whether to translate the Hebrew as wind or as spirit. And his fallible interpretation of the passage could mean that he introduces an error into God's infallible word. Not only that, in some passages, it would not have been clear even to an ancient Israelite whether the writer is talking about the wind or if he's talking about the spirit. But we English readers, we lose that sense of ambiguity because the Bible translator has decided upon one of those two meanings. Of course, the translator can put a marginal note informing the reader that the word he has just translated as spirit could also mean wind, but, you know, it it still isn't the same, and most readers don't take the time to stop and examine every marginal note in the Bible to begin with. Uh... I recently heard two messages that addressed the issue of capitalization. You know, there was no way to capitalize a letter in either ancient Hebrew or in Greek. Yet in the 21st century English, it normally makes a huge difference in the meaning of the word. And, you know, all throughout both Old and New Testaments, the word spirit could mean either Holy Spirit or the spirit of a man. And, It could also mean the essence or sense of something, such as the spirit of the law. Um, You know, except through marginal notes, there is no way to address that ambiguity. (laughs) Man, that word, I'm going to quit using it because it's just messing me up. Uh, There's no way to address that difference in the English language once the translator decides to go with either a capital or lowercase s you know he has changed um, a specific expression in Hebrew or Greek into uh, non-specific expression in English you know so in short unless God was going to lock up his word in ancient Hebrew Aramaic and Greek he had to guide 
the transmission of his word in such a way that it could be translated into other languages and still be his word. So, to me, you know, I think he purposely allowed scribal errors and variations to come into thousands of hand-copied manuscripts of his word in order to make it clear to us that his word does not turn on every word. And it definitely does not turn on every syllable of the text. If it did, you know, we would have to leave his word untranslated from ancient Hebrew and Greek. But, you know, at the same time, God has providentially worked things in his providence so that none of the variances in the thousands of different manuscripts affect the overall message that is found in the Bible. And God's word is his message. And his message, the message, people, has certainly been unchanged and preserved. Now, interestingly, there are more than 40,000 denominations. I'm going to say that again. There are more than 40,000 denominations, churches, and sects today all of whom present, uh, profess themselves to be orthodox Christians. They all profess to be the true version of Christianity. Yet, they teach many very different and contradictory things. And ironically, you know, these differences are not because they use different Bible texts. You know, back when virtually every English Christian um, used the King James Bible, there were still thousands of different churches and uh, different groups of so-called Christians. And there are thousands of people around today who hold similar views uh, to the one I hold on many of the key kingdom teachings. Y'all hear me say that word constantly. Kingdom Christianity. And that is because kingdom Christianity is the Christianity of the original church. It is the historic church. The historic faith that was held for the first 300 years of Christianity. Now, even with that being the case, they would still use the Masoretic text exclusively. Now, on the other hand, there are tens of thousands. Did you hear that? Tens of thousands of people who embrace the Septuagint, but they don't hold to the same teachings of kingdom Christianity that I hold to, and that the very 
early church, the anti-Nicene church, and the apostles held to. In fact, I don't know of a single Christian lifestyle doctrine that turns on or is even affected by whether we use the Septuagint or the Masoretic in our Bible translations, let alone whether we use this version of the Septuagint versus that version of the Septuagint because um, there actually are uh, different uh, versions and that is something that is so minuscule and so small it's not even worth getting into in tonight's program because there is the, the two versions are the same now the Masoretic also has more than one version and I know of only one Christian theology that is affected by whether or not we use the Septuagint or the Masoretic text and that is the doctrine of the atonement and the only reason why that doctrine is affected is because Isaiah 53 reads slightly differently in the Septuagint than it does in the Masoretic text. The two are extremely similar, but there is just enough difference to flavor the tone of things. I use the word quote-unquote affected because the different theories of the atonement don't on whether one uses the Septuagint or the Masoretic, but it definitely does affect it. You know, other than that, it isn't going to make any changes in your Christian life or your beliefs, whether you use a Bible translation that was um, created using the Septuagint or the Masoretic, because, and this is the spoiler alert, God has indeed preserved His Word. Now, some of you may be thinking, but didn't Jesus say that not one jot or one tittle of the law would pass away before uh, heaven and earth pass away? Yes, he did say that, but I hope that like I do, you believe that the law was fulfilled with the death of Christ because that is actually what it says that not one jot or tittle will pass away until the law is fulfilled it says not one jot or tittle of the law would pass away before it was fulfilled yet it was fulfilled with the death of Christ But nevertheless, we're going to talk about this in more detail in a later episode when we have a little more time to get into that specific aspect of the fulfillment of the law versus the doing away with it and how it affects scripture and the translation of scripture 
and we'll see that Jesus is not talking about the text of the law, but he's actually talking about the commandments of the law. And I've actually um, covered this in a couple of the Kingdom Christianity episodes that uh, I did back in 2020, uh, last year. I covered a lot of this. And you can actually find... We've got an entire playlist here on the YouTube channel. If you just go to the playlist and look through it, you'll find the playlist on... um, I think it's called... uh, Kingdom Christianity. I don't know for sure, but I will do this much. I will put it... I'll put a link in the description to that playlist for you guys and um, that way you can just go to it if you would like to uh, find out more about that but for now uh, we're going to look and see just exactly which of the Old Testament text families was the best And the reason why I use the word best is that it wasn't a contest between the one pure, unadulterated word of God versus two families of Bible texts that were just worthless. Uh, You know, most Jews in the third century BC had no choice few if any Jews would have owned copies of the actual Old Testament scrolls you know they went to a synagogue to hear it read every Sabbath but that's about it and in most places they probably did not have a choice about the synagogue they went to you know there was usually only one in their uh, you know their particular area you know so whichever text family that they happen to have at that synagogue that's what you heard read and that's the way it was then however you know the basic message was the same regardless of which text was being used however God did have a choice and I personally find it impossible to believe that the Gentile world ended up with a Bible They could read only through happenstance. A pagan ruler wanted to have the best public library possible in his city, and through this accident, the Old Testament was translated into Greek? No, it was no accident. Come on, man. And it just happened to be there for the Christians to start using to spread the gospel? this was the providential hand of God the Bible was available to the Gentile world and the Greek speaking Jewish world because God planned it that way so God had to decide you know which text family to go with and he chose to go with the family that the Septuagint was taken from for me that seals the deal What other evidence could I or you possibly need? God made the choice for us. But for argument's sake, let's just suppose that God was not behind the translation of the the Septuagint. It was simply just a product of 
But Ptolemy's idea, coupled with the cooperation of these Jewish leaders, well, in that case, the Jewish high priest and other leaders, they made the choice. If that were the case, which one would they have chosen? Wouldn't it have honestly been the text that they considered the best? I mean, after all, if they did not want to cooperate, they could have made excuses, um, you know, that it was not doable, that it could not be done. And at a minimum, if they weren't wanting to cooperate, they could have just sent just a few, just two or three translators. Uh, And Ptolemy didn't have to request a team of 72 translators for that matter. That was the idea of the Jewish leaders. He did not even request it. It was the Jewish leaders that came up with the idea, or at least through the providence of God, decided to send 72 translators. You know, that was their idea. So they were obviously wanting to cooperate with Ptolemy. So they would have chosen the text that they thought was going to be the best text. Either that, or there was only one text type being used in the temple at that time. And so that's what they sent with the team of translators. It's one or the other, and in either case, the best version was sent and God used that to create an inspired translation of the Hebrew scriptures in Greek. And if they had nothing else to go on, the Jewish leaders would have more than likely they would have they would have favored the text that they did because it contained far fewer difficult passages than their pre-Masoretic text. Now, in this time, the Masoretic text, it didn't exist yet, but the, the text that they did have, it was considered uh, pre, or some call it proto-Masoretic, but it had a lot more difficult passages than the one that they chose. And I'll give you some examples of that. But before I do, I want to explain for the sake of simplification. uh, You know, Mary Callie always tells me that I need to try to spoon feed these these difficult subjects. So I'm going to try to simplify it. I'll be referring to the other text family simply as the Masoretic text. Actually, the Masoretic text is a product of the Jewish scribes from the Middle Ages. Uh, And if you look at um, the, the thumbnail that I put up on YouTube, you'll see exactly what I think of not the text because God is in charge with the finished product but 
with the Masorites themselves. They were corrupt. Now, the Tex family that existed before then is probably probably easily understood over the entire scholarly world as the proto-Masoretic. You know, beyond a doubt, one of the most difficult passages in the entire Masoretic is the account of Saul and David in 1 Samuel chapter 16, um, verses 18 through 22. It says, Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person. And the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly. And he became his armor-bearer. Then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. Yet, after this, in the very next chapter, when David volunteers to go and fight Goliath, Saul doesn't even know who David is. I mean, look what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 17, starting in verse 55. It says, When Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner says, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So the king said, Inquire, whose son this young man is. Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistines, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? So David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. So, I mean, did Saul have brain surgery between chapter 16 and 17? Uh, <laughs> I mean, what in the world is going on here? Is it even believable that Saul would not even know who David is here? David personally played the harp for Saul. He was his special armor bearer. In chapter 17, Saul doesn't even address him as David. Rather, he says, Whose son are you, young man? And David doesn't reply, O king, surely you know me. I am David, the one who has played the harp for you. You know who my father is and where I come from. No, that's not what he says. David answers him like it's a perfectly natural question. And, you know, I I realize that commentators will come up with, you know, inventive ways to try to make that passage make sense. But the truth is, there is just no reasonable way to do it. Um, You know, if that episode had appeared in the Apocrypha, you know, everyone would point to it as proof that the Apocrypha has errors and is not inspired. 
because there is no way to make sense of this passage. But what about the Septuagint? There's no problem there because that entire difficult passage is not found in the Septuagint. It's only found in the Masoretic text. Another example of a textual difficulty in the Masoretic is 2 Samuel 6.23. And there it says, Therefore Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child until the day of her death. However, later in 2 Samuel we read, So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, sorry, I I don't know how to pronounce that. The two sons of Rispa and the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul. And that's 2 Samuel 21, uh, verse 8. But the Septuagint reads, So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rispa and the five sons of Merab, the daughters of Saul, 2 Samuel 21, verse 8. In the Septuagint, there's no contradiction. This contradiction just doesn't appear in the Septuagint at all. I'll give you one more example, and it's from 2 Chronicles. In chapters 21 and 22, we read in the Masoretic, Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem eight years, and to no one's sorrow departed. However, they buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. Then the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, his youngest son, king in his place. For the raiders who came with the Arabians into the camp had killed all the older sons. So Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, reigned. Ahaziah was 42 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. We have a serious, serious problem here. If Jehoram died when he was 40 years old, then his youngest son could not possibly have been 42 at the time. I mean, you see... Once again, this difficulty just does not exist in the Septuagint. It reads that Ahaziah began to reign when he was 20 years old. Another problem that appears in the Masoretic text is not apparent to most English readers, that is, concerns Psalm 145, which is in an alphabetic poem. And in this type of poem, the initial letter of each verse follows the Hebrew alphabet in sequence. Psalm 119 is an example of such a poem. However, in the Masoretic for Psalm 145, there is no verse beginning with the letter nun or nun, which is equivalent to the English letter n. There should be a verse between verses 13 and 14 just like this. It is extremely hard for me to believe that the psalmist would go through the entire Hebrew alphabet 
yet leave out one of the letters. Thankfully, you know, we see this missing verse is there in the Septuagint. Interestingly enough, though, one of the Hebrew manuscripts of the Psalms that was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, it also contains this missing verse, and it reads the exact same as the one that is found in the Septuagint. So we know for a fact that at one time, it was definitely there in Hebrew. So... Just for the sake of argument, if the decision of which text to use was solely that of the Jewish priest and of the leaders, and it was not God's decision, they would likely have chosen the text that they did because it did not contain those difficult passages that we just read through. Now, Again, I want to say that we are only discussing tonight the Septuagint versus the Masoretic in reference to which one the ancient Christians and the ancient Jews used until they eventually, the the Jewish people because of the passages in the Septuagint that they were getting pounded with by the Christians that showed that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, they decided to change it. And that is the reason why they went with a different text altogether. And once the Jews... Now, again, understand... The reason that the Jews did away with the Septuagint, the reason they gave was not the true reason. The reason they gave was they said that it was a faulty translation. But again, the reason that they truly did away with it was because of all of the Messianic passages. And anytime... Um, the Jewish religious leaders uh, saw that a scroll of scripture was old or had become worn out. You know, it was thrown away and discarded. So, in that same way, when the Jewish religious leaders said that the Septuagint was a faulty translation, they had all of their existing copies of the Septuagint destroyed. So that left only the Christians with the remaining copies. The Christians had the only remaining copies of the Septuagint. Now, I want to... Oh man, I'm just looking at the time. I'm, I am definitely going to have to make this a two-part episode and I um, I apologize for that, but uh, there is definitely a reason for it, and it's because I want to show beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Septuagint is the translation 
that matches the original Hebrew manuscript, at least in its infallibility. When it was copied, when it was translated, it was literally the same as the original. But if you hear a scholar today speak on which translation of the Old Testament that should have been used to translate our English Bible, they will almost unanimously say that it should have been the Masoretic text. Well, in part two of this episode, we are going to look at why that is not true and what the problem is with the Masoretic and the Masoretes themselves. And we're also going to look at the similarities between the original Hebrew language and the Greek language and the differences between the Hebrew language of the Masoretes and the Hebrew language after the captivity in Babylon, the Babylonian captivity, the, uh, the language that was used that it, scholars call the Proto-Masoretic, the, the, that is the language that was used in the Proto-Masoretic as well as the Masoretic itself, it is considered and called the Assyrian script. It's, it's not even um, Hebrew as far as uh, where the language itself comes from. Um, I'm sure many of you are familiar, and I, I've heard people say that Jesus spoke Aramaic. Well, because Jesus was God, I'll give you that Jesus probably spoke every language, including ones that haven't even, that hadn't even been invented yet. However, um, regardless to what language Jesus spoke, Aramaic, as well as the Hebrew of Jesus's time, was not Hebrew. It was, indeed, the, the Babylonian language, the Assyrian language. If you were to go to school today in Israel and learn the language the way that we Americans learn English, you would see clearly that it's the Assyrian script. If you look in um, places like Bible dictionaries, um, or I'm almost positive, don't quote me on this, but I'm almost positive that if you look at the strong concordance, it says the Assyrian script or the Babylonian text. Now, I'm not positive about that, but I will be by the the next episode. And the second thing that we're going to look at um, is the text of the New Testament, the Textus Receptus versus the... um, 
and the the translations that it came from, the different manuscripts that it came from, the different um, versions of the Greek New Testament, and you know you had several. There were the Byzantine manuscripts and the uh, Alexandrian and some were considered on a higher level than others by some and they still are we're going to look at is that the case Um, is our New Testament the same as it was when it was originally written down and has anything been changed in it Um, is it the Word of God, the same way the Old Testament is. Now, we've already looked at the differences between the Septuagint and how the Septuagint was literally the Word of God considered inerrant. Inerrant means infallible by Jesus himself, as well as the Jews during the time before Christ and the time of Christ. And we looked at the differences between the Septuagint and the Masoretic. But we also found that although there were differences, that by today, 2,000 years removed from the time of the creation of the church and the whole reason for the Greek translation of scripture in the first place so that the entire Gentile world could have the word of God brought into their lives and so the church could actually be formed we've seen that 2,000 years later there's no true difference in the message now we are going to see how there was in the time of Christ and in the early church and what the early church believed regarding which text was the best which text was the word of God Now, I hope that you guys will definitely come back to hear the next episode because the most important thing, in my opinion, that we are going to talk about in part two is going to be the name that we know is missing in our English Bibles, and it is is also missing in the Masoretic text, by the way, um, for the name of God. Um, It's uh, the only thing there we know is the Tetragrammaton. We're going to be looking at the Tetragrammaton versus the actual name of God. And we're going to show beyond a shadow of a doubt that the these sacred name movements all of the you know the why name 
um, movements that, you know, say that Jesus is not the name of the Messiah, we're going to see why that they are wrong and what the name of God that has been lost to us actually was and is. So you definitely do not want to miss next week's program. We're going to be continuing this extremely fascinating study on the Word of God. Now, what was Jesus? He was the Word made flesh. And I always tell people, the way that God talks to us is through the Bible. So, the main thing I want to get across to everyone tonight is read your Bibles. But more than that, study your Bibles. There is a difference between reading and studying the Bible. Now tonight, we've been studying about the Bible. And next week, we're going to continue studying about the Bible. But we're also going to go even further. So be sure to tune in to next week's edition of the Remnant Report. That is truly all the time we have for tonight's Remnant Report. So until next time, for the Next Chapter Radio Network and Kingdom Productions, I am the Remnant Warrior saying good night and grace and peace.